You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors. I'm Corey Janoff, joined as always by Rochelle Vanderzanden. Hello. And... We are recording this in early July, which means we're in the new academic calendar year. By the time you hear this, it'll probably be August or maybe even September. But we've got a new batch of PGY1 starting residency and a number of you in your last year of training. So today we wanted to discuss some pertinent finance tips for residents and attendings if you haven't already got a handle on some of these items. So you can position yourself for long-term financial success. So... Where do you want to start, Rochelle? Yeah, I think the first thing to start with, especially when we're talking about people who are brand new in residency and just starting to get a paycheck, is kind of learning how to adjust from living on student loans or maybe living with some support from family to actually you know, trying to make a budget work with your own paycheck. And I think the important thing here is that, yeah, you're a doctor, but you're not making doctor money yet. <laughs> And it's really important that you live like a broke resident, which broke resident, you're probably making like average, typical American money. You know, it's it's not like you're making nothing, but you're not making a ton of money. So make sure that you live within your means the best to your, of your ability and not like, you know, you're going to be an attending doctor tomorrow because you're not. You've got a few more years in front of you. And just don't spend money that you haven't earned yet. That means, you know, with your car, you're driving a used Honda not a new Tesla. You know, if you live in a really transit-friendly community, maybe it makes sense to ditch a car altogether and just use public transit, ride a bike, all that kind of stuff. Um, And you want to make sure that you actually look at what your income is each month and look at what your expenses and just try to do some mental accounting. See like how much fits in, what do you have that's left over with the money that's left over, How much do you want to be allocating that for maybe like the fun things, the extra things? And how much do you want to be like, hey, let's put some money towards my long-term goals? Because even in residency, ideally you can be putting some money towards those other goals as well. You also want to make sure that with your cash flow and with any sort of budget you put together that you're building in a buffer because there will always be unexpected expenses it's you know whether it's flying home because there's a family situation or you know you need new tires for your car you know there's all sorts of things that will come up that will be unexpected expenses and we want to treat those like they're one-off situations and they are but those one-off situations come up very frequently and so ideally you just have a little bit of wiggle room in your budget to accommodate that when it happens yeah live below your means Next thing we want to address is student loans. So most of you have student loans. The I think average med student now graduates with over 200,000 of student loan debt. So we need to figure out a game plan for the student loans. And while you're in training, 99% of you should probably be pursuing PSLF at least during the residency years. Even if you plan on going into private practice as an attending, um, 
you know, we don't want to shut that door until we know it's it's completely out of the question. So let's at least you know get on the track on the off chance that we do end up you know meeting the requirements for PSLF, whichever route life takes us. Um, you know, trying to take advantage of that early and often will will benefit you in the long run. We did a whole episode on PSLF, I believe episode 12, and how to qualify, what you have to do. So I encourage you to go listen to that if you're curious about PSLF. But I think the biggest things to do is do a direct loan consolidation if you don't already have the federal direct student loans. You'll know if they're direct loans because they say the word direct in the title. And uh, then you also need to enroll on an income-driven payment plan. So either income-based repayment, which is IBR, pay-as-you-earn, P-A-Y-E, or repay, revised pay-as-you-earn, any of the income based or driven payment plans will suffice or even the standard 10-year but that would probably be a little hefty for most residents and and, in short they they calculate the payment owed based on your income Um, so it ends up being a a reasonable amount usually a few hundred bucks while you're in training you know as a single individual if you have a spouse household income could be factored in Um, but uh but not with all payment plans. So again, listen to that episode because you know, there's nuances to each. But anyways, the sooner you can start making income-based payments, um, the sooner you can get your loans forgiven. You have to make 120 qualifying monthly payments. So an income-driven payment plan while working for a qualifying employer, which pretty much all residency and fellowship institutions are. Any hospital in America, for the most part, qualifies. Um so, you know, in essence, every $300 payment you make during residency is a $3,000 payment you don't have to make when you're in practice. So the more you can, more payments you can rack up during training, the closer you'll be to PSLF, and then uh, the more money you'll get forgiven, the less money you end up having to pay out of pocket. And then, sure, when you get into practice, if you join a private group or, or just want to pay them off aggressively because you don't have a very large balance we can cross that bridge at that point but at least during training let's you know keep that pslf option open for us because it's a great thing to take advantage of uh, if it makes sense for your circumstances definitely one thing just to be really 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 clear about is with the the loan consolidation or doing a direct loan consolidation be really careful about when you do that and if you do that Right now, you can consolidate your loans if there's no direct loans into a direct loan package without restarting your payment count. That's only until the end of October of 2022. If you consolidate any time after that, you're restarting your payment count from zero. So if you've already made qualifying payments on some of your loans, and maybe there's like $5,000 of loans or something like that, that that don't qualify, it doesn't make sense to do that. So be really careful before deciding to do a loan consolidation. One time it definitely usually makes sense to do it is when you're finishing up med school and when you're in that grace period before your payments kick in. So you usually have like a six-month grace period. If you do a loan consolidation before the end of that grace period, it actually triggers the start of your payments sooner, which is a good thing because you get to make more payments at your lower income level and maybe even at a zero payment if you've like filed your taxes previously and you can demonstrate no income. So if you're in your grace period, it's not you haven't made qualifying payments yet. Let's assume that like if you have not made qualifying payments yet. Um, then it can make sense to do that. But otherwise, you want to be really careful about if and when you do that. If you ever have any questions, you can also talk to your loan servicer directly 
about whether it makes sense for you to reach out to us because every everyone's circumstance is a little bit different. Yeah, that's good to bring up um, that direct loan consolidation. And then, yeah, you mentioned about the the taxes. Um, you know, it, usually they base the income off of your prior year's tax return. Well, if you were in med school, your income was zero. Therefore, your income-based payment for the following year would be zero. But those zero-dollar payments still count towards qualifying payments for public service loan forgiveness. So ideally, as soon as you can, get on the payment plan um, and, and you essentially you'll have a year, you'll have 12 payments that you pay zero dollars on but still count towards the 120 needed to qualify for forgiveness. Yep. Yeah, and even after your first year in training, like you only have six months of income in that calendar year. So your payment will probably be very low when you're using that income to demonstrate what your qualifying payment should be too. So lots of lots of neat ways like when you're in training to keep that payment low and have those those payments counted towards your 120 total. Um, one other thing just kind of talking or going back to, to cash flow and things like that is just credit cards. Like this can be a sticky one for some folks, but I think it's fine to use credit cards. It's a great way to build your credit. You can get points and all of that kind of stuff. But ideally, you pay those off in full every billing cycle. We don't want those to be accruing interest because the interest rates can be very, very high. Like legally, I think they can be up to 29.99%. It's not uncommon to see them at 15, 16, 24%. And that's a lot of interest to be paying on credit card balances that you're holding. If you did leave med school and you have a little bit in credit cards, you know, scrimp and save and put every extra dollar you can possibly put towards those credit cards and try to knock them out as quickly as possible. That might mean like maybe you get a roommate. Maybe you eat more Top Ramen than you want to. Maybe you love Top Ramen and you should just do that anyway. But maybe eat some vegetables with it. That's the mom in me, I guess. <laughs> Rice and beans. So. Another one, and no order of operations here in terms of importance. All these things are, are arguably important, but I would maybe you know put a, a, an extra level of importance on getting disability insurance. You're, the key to all of these things we're talking about, anything to do with your finances, you need income to make it all work, um, for better or worse. So if, as long as you depend on income to pay your bills, to eat, save for retirement, etc., now as long as you depend on that income we should protect that income as best as possible. So get disability insurance ASAP. Um, the, the coverage you have through work, if you even do have coverage through work, is inadequate. It's not going to cover all of your income. The policy language usually isn't very strong. There's a reason it's free and everyone at the hospital gets the same policy. All the young, health, healthy people get the same coverage as the old, unhealthy people. So we need to get a supplemental plan outside of work that is specialty specific, what's called a an own occupation definition of disability. So if you can't do your specific job, you're getting paid. doesn't matter if you could do another job or even another specialty in medicine. As long as you can't do your specific job, you're, you're eligible for benefits. Um, nice thing is in, in training, there's a lot of discounts available for residents and fellows. Underwriting is usually more flexible. Oftentimes you don't have to do a health exam. You just have to fill out the application and answer some health questions. And depending on health history, they may want to review some medical records, but it, it usually is 
relatively painless to, to get a, a quality policy in your training years. Um, now, if you do have health issues or, or maybe some blemishes in your medical history, before applying through a traditionally underwritten policy where they ask you a bunch of health questions, it might make sense to see if if there is a guaranteed standard issue disability option available through your institution. Now, this wouldn't be through the employer benefits, which is kind of confusing. It, it would be offered through a separate disability insurance agency, but only to people at your institution. Um, not every teaching hospital has these available. Um, they're, they're, they're a little few and far between, but there's a good number of them around the country um, through various insurance companies. So you know, check to see, ask some friends or colleagues, um, you know, Google. You can reach out to us as well. We have a list of most of the ones across America. See if one's available at your institution. But that's a good option to, to lock in that, that doesn't have any medical underwriting requirements if you do have some health issues. Because if you do have health issues, there could either be exclusions put on your policy, they could limit features, or potentially decline you when you apply. And if you get declined on an application, that's going to prohibit you from, from securing one of those guaranteed issue policies. So um, tread carefully. If you do have health issues, reach out to us. If you have a clean bill of health, then... Um, you know, lock in a, a good quality policy. And again, feel free to reach out to us if you need a, some direction on which company to go with because there's a handful and, and everyone's a little different depending on your age, specialty, where you live, etc. Definitely. I think a lot of times I have clients ask me like, when should I be getting this? And sometimes folks think, okay, it's the last year of training. Let's do it in my last year of training because that's the last year I have access to these discounts, etc., etc. Don't do that. <laughs> like it's just like if you need your money, you need your money now. You don't need your money only in the last year of training and you're taking some big risks by waiting. If your health changes, it can make it impossible to get it if you don't have access to a GSI plan. If anything, get it in the last year of med school. Yeah. Yeah. So usually in the last year of med school is when you can potentially qualify to get a policy uh, just based on what your occupation is going to be. The other thing is that, you know, a lot of times it's like, oh, well, I don't need this much coverage because I'm not making this much money. It's like, OK, well, are you planning your financial future based on your $60,000 resident income? Because I don't think you are. You know, you're planning your financial future based on what that attending income is going to be, especially if you have student loans. Like that's a huge part of it is that we're kind of dependent on that higher income or working for a qualifying institution to be able to get rid of those student loans eventually. And if you're unable to work, that whole plan goes out the window. And so there's there's a lot of different things and, and different risk factors that you have early on in your career that makes it really important to be locking something in as soon as you can. For sure. Another one worth considering is life insurance. Now, if you have a spouse, children, dependents, you need life insurance. Get it. If you don't have a spouse, children, and, or dependents, but if you think one day you'll have a spouse, children, or dependents, strongly consider getting life insurance. It's a lot cheaper and easier to get the younger and healthier you are, and rarely do people get younger and healthier over time. So if you think you're going to need it down the road, there's really no better time than now to lock it in because the rates are never going to be better than they are today for you. 
Um, now that being said, if you know cost is a concern, we got a lot of obligations. Living in an expensive city, maybe it's just not in the budget right now to get a, a, a substantial policy. Sure, maybe we we put it off if we don't have an immediate need. But if you have a little bit of extra room in the budget, could be worth locking it in. And you can get a pretty sizable amount of, of term life insurance for a, a, a pretty inexpensive cost if you're young and in good health. Um, term insurance probably makes the most sense for all of you listening uh, at this stage. And, and honestly, in most stages, even as an attending, term insurance is probably the most appropriate for about 95% of doctors. Um, but there are some circumstances where having a policy that lasts indefinitely. So term insurance is temporary. It only lasts for a set number of years where permanent policies, whole life, variable life, universal, etc., um, can last indefinitely. And, you know, for whatever, there's a number of reasons why you might want life insurance to last indefinitely. Odds are none of them apply to you at, at this stage in your career. Um, however, having a, the option to get that later on without health becoming a concern and, and preventing you from qualifying is helpful. So getting a term policy through a company that allows you to convert the temporary coverage into a permanent plan if desired without a- answering health questions can be beneficial. Um, but, uh, but yeah, kind of along the lines of the disability insurance, you know, need to protect our, our income, need to protect our families. So life insurance could make some sense to, to explore, uh, at this point in time too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think if you have dependents, it's kind of a no brainer. If you don't, I would just put it like priority list as disability first, maybe life insurance second, but at the same time, you can look at them both at the same time and it's a pretty easy process a lot of the time. Yeah. One other thing that we do have folks ask us about a lot is just housing. Um, When you're renting and you're in training, that's probably going to be a big part of your budget. If you buy, obviously, that's going to be a big part of your budget too. In general, it usually makes sense to rent when you're in training. And I know that people can be really tired of like moving around, not having their own place and things like that. And there's some personal considerations there. But in general, financially, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make a lot more sense to rent. First of all, like the debt burden is going to be pretty high in most places if you do buy. Like that mortgage payment is going to be quite a bit. And then you've got to tack on property insurance. You've got to tack on like taxes probably depending on where you live and and all sorts of like maintenance issues when you're renting you don't have to worry about any of that you know you have one payment you don't have to worry about it if a pipe breaks like someone's going to take care of that for you um and it's going to be more convenient the other thing is that if you're in training a lot of times you may end up moving again when you're done with training maybe you move for fellowship and then you move again for your attending job you could have a few moves in your future And when you're going to live in a home for a short amount of time, like the shorter amount of time you're in that home, the less chance you have of actually like making money on it. So if you buy a house and then you sell it three years later at the end of a three-year residency, you may break even. You may lose a little money. It's just like a big risk factor. You're taking on a lot of that risk yourself that when you're renting, really the landlord has that risk of like whether that home is appreciating or not. Normally, like it doesn't usually make sense to buy until you have at least five years or so to be in a home. And then a lot of times it can pencil out a little bit better. Again, it kind of depends on what happens in the housing market and things like that. But there's just a better chance that that's going to work out favorably for you. Um, And, you know, keep in mind that you got to try to live within your means as best as you can. 
with renting, like you don't probably need a two-bedroom apartment. Maybe you do. Probably don't if you're single. (laughs) But just, you know, like make choices knowing that the money you don't spend on a house, you get to spend on other things. The money you don't spend on rent, you get to spend on other things. Ideally, you can try to keep the total cost of your housing below 20% of your gross income. You know, so if you're making $60,000 a year, that's $12,000 a year or $1,000 a month. That might be kind of challenging. But that's kind of like what we're shooting for, what hopefully you can do if at all possible. For sure. Yeah, obviously, depending on what city you're in, that may be more realistic. But you also can find a place that's less expensive, maybe a little bit further away instead of across the street from the hospital. It's a 10-minute drive and... Like we said earlier with the cash flow management, maybe you get some roommates that first year of residency. Um, you know, there's a lot of options. So um, another one, uh, emergency reserves. So pretty simple, straightforward. Try and uh, accumulate or maintain three to six months worth of living expenses for emergencies, getting back to the cash management. Things happen, car breaks, you know, stuff needs to be repaired. You got to you know, fix something, fly to a funeral, you know, whatever the case may be. If your phone breaks, there's always something, it seems, on a, at least once a month. Something that wasn't expected pops up that costs you a few dollars. So having some money set aside for that is beneficial. Again, understand budget's limited. Try your best um, to, to build that up and maintain it and, and just whatever you need to get by in a month. You know, add up your bills and expenses, multiply that by three that's what we should try and have at a minimum set aside in our, our cash savings for emergencies. Absolutely. And that can be hard when you're in training. It might not be doable. Just do your best, you know. The more you have a buffer, the less you have to rely on credit cards when those emergencies do come up. Yeah. Um, the other one to kind of think about is retirement savings. This is something where when you're in training, we want to do everything we can towards retirement savings, but really it's going to kick into high gear as an attending. So we have to kind of prioritize, like where does it make sense to put the amount of money you have to save? You know, so first of all, I would say if you have a plan at work, a 403B, a 401K, whatever it might be, if they offer you any sort of matching dollars or contributions for you, then you want to do enough to get every free dollar they will give you. So even if they're only matching like 50%, let's say you put in 6%, they're going to put in 3%. That's an immediate like 50% return on your investment. It is free money. So we want to do that. And that's that's a very high priority. And then if you are like married, make sure your spouse is also doing the same thing. Make sure they're putting enough money into their retirement plan that they take full advantage of any matching dollars, any free money. The next priority is probably a Roth IRA. So if you're not getting a match at work or if you're doing that and you still feel like you have more money in the budget to be able to save, a Roth IRA is a great, great plan to get started when you're in training. Um, Assuming that you're below the income limit, it can get a little bit complicated if you're over the income limit and maybe possible if you're, you're married and your partner makes a bit more money. Um, But in general, those accounts, you don't get a tax deduction for putting money into them now, but the money gets to grow while it's in the account if it's invested and if, you know, the investments are doing well, assuming all of that. And then when you take it out in retirement, you don't have to pay taxes on anything as long as you're the correct age. So if you're 59 and a half or older, you get to take out all of that growth 
and not pay taxes on it. So when you're early on in your career, you can choose to pay taxes in the tax bracket that you're in right now, which will likely be lower than it will be in the future, just as a function of your income. You're going to make more money in the future, so you're probably going to make more tax or pay more taxes in the future. So if we can put money into that Roth IRA now, kind of max it out, get some money into that account that you know you're not going to have to worry about taxes on when you're in retirement, that's a really, really, really good place to be starting with retirement savings. If you ever have questions about like how to set those up or anything like that, you can always reach out to us. Um, just be really careful of those income limits. You know, if you are married especially, that can potentially come up because if you make too much money, you can't put money right into a Roth IRA. That's where the backdoor Roth comes into play, which we've done a whole episode about that too. But good problem to have. If you make too much money to contribute to a Roth IRA, don't complain to your peers in residency. They won't like you. But uh you know, there's still ways to get money in to the Roth account. And I would also encourage you with that 403B contribution to get the full match, make make your 403B contributions Roth contributions as well. Almost every plan in the country these days allows you to choose either pre-tax or Roth contributions to the workplace plan. And again, you're in probably the lowest tax bracket you'll ever be in right now. Roth is an after-tax contribution. So you're paying income taxes on your income today, putting the money into the retirement account. But all that money invests and hopefully grows over time, and you can withdraw the entire balance plus the earnings tax-free. Whereas pre-tax contributions, you get a tax deduction today at the lowest tax bracket you'll ever be in, but then have to pay taxes at income tax rates when you pull the money out in the future, probably at a much higher tax bracket than you're in today. So um, order of operations, like Rochelle said, get the full match on your workplace retirement plans, max out a Roth IRA. um, And then if you still want to save more for retirement, you could put a lot more into that workplace retirement plan. The limits are pretty high there. And if you have a spouse, same thing. And then if you're still looking to save more for retirement, my hat's off to you. Um, you're, you're doing a very good job living within your means. Maybe you're moonlighting to bring in extra income or something. But there's other investment vehicles out there. Probably the, the next logical step for most of you would be just setting up a regular taxable brokerage account, which has you know no real limits or restrictions. You can put as little or as much in as you want. Um, and, and invest for your future goals. And with all of these accounts... Make sure that you actually invest the money in the account in something that's appropriate for your goals and and time horizon. And if we're talking retirement savings for most of you, you're going to want something more aggressive, long-term growth oriented. Um, If you don't make an investment choice within your workplace plan, odds are it'll default you into just a generic age-based portfolio, which is fine. Um, But all these other accounts like the Roth IRA, the brokerage account, all they are is a bucket that holds your investments. It's not an actual investment itself. A Roth IRA is not an investment. If you just put money into a Roth IRA and don't do anything from there, you're just putting cash into a Roth IRA, and it's going to sit there and collect dust. Um, so you actually have to invest the money within the account itself into mutual funds or ETFs or whatnot, um, which that's a different topic for another episode, but uh, make sure you're actually investing that money. And then lastly, avoid trying to time the market, finding, oh, what's the optimal time to put money in and invest for maximum growth? I mean, come on, if we're in training, your your, your time horizon is 60 plus years. You know, we, hopefully you have a, another 60 plus years to live 
and uh, therefore we need our investments to grow over time. You can't touch them for another 30 years, like Rochelle said. Age 59 and a half is the earliest you can get to these qualified retirement plans. So if the stock market isn't higher 30 years from now compared to today, we probably have some bigger problems at hand in our world. Um, so just buy and hold, invest for the long run, put your blinders on, don't even bother looking at the account, just set it and forget it, invest, and look at it 30 years later and you'll be pleased. Yeah. I think the one thing that you can check on every once in a while is like, hmm, I feel like I'm doing okay financially. I've got a little extra wiggle room. Go back into that 403, bump it up a couple percent. Like that's one thing that you can just check on every once in a while and just push yourself a little bit. It feels good to save. Yeah. I think, you know, just as a quick summary, there's some kind of boring stuff we want to do. Like, you know, live within your means, figure out a game plan for your student loans. And a lot of time the game plan with your student loans is like not a ton. You know, you're going to enroll in an income-driven payment plan and, and do that for now. Um, and then, you know, look into disability and life insurance. I think disability insurance, put a big old star on that one. Life insurance, big old star on that one if you have family too. Housing costs, just keeping that as reasonable as possible and probably renting. Again, probably more buying, like more boring than buying a home, but it's probably just going to be easier, especially if you're going to end up moving again in a few years. Um, emergency reserves, exciting stuff. And then I think start saving for retirement. That's the, the kind of fun silver lining thing, at least for me it is. But you want to make sure your money is invested in there. And if all of this sounds overwhelming, like there are people out there that can help, you know, listen to the podcast, read the blog, you can reach out to us. There's lots of good financial advisors out there that specialize in working with doctors. And a lot of them will help people when they're in training too. And not like you might think it's expensive. It's not like, or it doesn't have to be depending on who you work with. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people at Finity Group that talk to people too. And, and usually when we're working with people in training, there's not a cost for like our time or advice. So if you're ever confused, you can just reach out and we're happy to have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, we have a, a neat policy here at Finity where we, we waive costs for meetings while people are in training as, you know, residents, med students. Um, now, if you have a spouse that's an attending or, or you know, earns a decent income in another profession that could be a different story but if it's just your generic single resident situation yeah happy to to offer some some free you know guidance on your your circumstances so don't hesitate to reach out anything else you can think of that we overlooked Rochelle I don't know there's always more things to talk about but you guys can listen to the other episodes too <laughs> There we go. Thank you for listening. Have a good one. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on the finitygroup.com slash podcast on our Finity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our financial clarity blog at the finitygroup.com slash blog. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC. 